Hillary. I'm Emily. And we're the, we the Sirens. Today we are talking about Dial M for Murder, which is a 1954 crime film directed by Alfred Hitchcock. It stars Grace Kelly, Ray Milland, Robert Cummings, and John Williams. It's based on a stage play that was written by Frederick Knott, who also wrote the screenplay. And the music is by Dimitri Tiomkin, and the cinematography is by Robert Burks. The premise is fairly simple. Tony Wendis, who is played by Ray Milland, is an English professional tennis player who is married to a wealthy socialite named Margot. Margot has had an affair a year previous with an American crime fiction writer named Mark Halliday, with whom she was in school. When Tony retires from tennis, he secretly discovers this affair, and he decides he's going to murder Margot, both or to avenge the affair and also to ensure that her money ends up going to him to finance the lifestyle to which he has become accustomed. It you may could just get alimony. Yeah. <laughs> it may go without saying that it doesn't turn out the way he thought it was going to. So. <laughs> <laughs> So there you go. Do you have any trivia for us about this movie? Yes. I feel like there's always a lot of trivia about Hitchcock movies. Yes. Um, So this movie was filmed in just 36 days Uh um, in 1953 from August 5th through September 25th. So Mm -hmm. I thought that was pretty impressive. And it probably low production costs overall because um, Hitchcock also made an effort to shoot almost entirely indoors on purpose to try to make the movie feel more claustrophobic. Yes. Which I thought it did, for sure. Totally. What do you think? Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> I was wanting to be somewhere besides their apartment. Yes. <laughs> and you mentioned that it was adapted from the Broadway play, um, which opened at the Plymouth Theater in New York on October 29, 1952, and ran for 552 performances. In this movie, John Williams and Anthony Dawson played the same roles as they did on stage. Oh. Uh, this movie came out sort of when people were all obsessed with 3D. So oh, yeah. So brothers insisted that they shot it in 3D. Which is crazy. Like, <laughs> makes no sense for this movie at all. Hitchcock wanted the first shot to be that close-up of a finger dial- dialing the letter oh, M on a rotary yeah. phone. Uh Um, But the 3D camera couldn't do it because it was such a close-up, so they had to make a giant finger out of wood and, like, a giant dial (laughs) to uh, (laughs) create that effect in 3D, which, like, they barely released it in 3D. Hitchcock was like, this makes no sense. They're just going to release it in 2D. And Warner Brothers was like, no, no, no. And then he was right. Yeah, because he's Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, he knows a thing or two. Yeah. Uh, So... Apparently, Hitchcock wanted Cary Grant to play the star. Yeah. Don't we always all want Cary Grant to play the star? (laughs) I do. (laughs) Um, They thought that he would be miscast as a villain. And honestly, I do kind of think, I don't know if I could see him in that part totally. I mean, how many years later, eight years later, he was in Charade, and for a while in Charade, spoiler alert, we think he's the bad guy. Yeah, I think it would have just put a different tone on the movie, like your sympathies would have been entirely with Cary Grant, (laughs) instead of... By default, um, because they always are. Yes. (laughs) So, Hitchcock also had Grace Kelly dressed 
in bright colors at the beginning mm-hmm. of the movie and then have them progressively get darker as the film went on, just like symbolically. Ooh. Which I thought was a nice detail. And then you know how Hitchcock always makes a cameo in all yes. of his movies. Yes. So in this one, he did not appear in the flesh, but he was in the uh, photograph yes. of the reunion. Yes. Did you spot him? Yes, I did. Of course you did. You always spot all the details. <laughs> <laughs> I did not notice it. I tried. If, if it had been the era of like Photoshop, I would have said that he was Photoshopped in. I also read that Grace Kelly was originally supposed to wear, like, a fancy dressing gown um, when she went to answer the telephone, mm-hmm. but she argued that, like, no woman's going to put on a fancy piece like this when she's home alone, and suggested that she just be in the nightgown, and Hitchcock went with it, and then after that, he always let her make all her own costume decisions yes. in subsequent movies. Yes. She was right about that. Mm-hmm. Totally. And, like, how can you go wrong going along with Grace Kelly's style convictions? Yeah, I think you can't go wrong. Um, So who did you bio for this movie, Hill? So I bioed Raymond Land, who played Tony Wendis, so the evil man. Raymond Land was born Alfred Reginald Jones in January 1907 in Wales. He is best remembered for an Academy Award-winning portrayal of an alcoholic writer in the movie The Lost Weekend in 1945, which was a few years before this movie. Um, But he also is known for playing the sophisticated leading man opposite um, John Wayne in the movie Reap the Wild, um, and then also for this movie and for his role in Love Story in 1970. He uh, was schooled um, independently as a young boy and then um, attended the private King's College School in Cardiff and then worked at his uncle's horse breeding farm for a while before leaving home at the age of 21. He um, didn't immediately become an actor. He first served in the household cavalry and became an expert shot on his company's rifle team, which later would play a role in his acting career. He won a lot of prestigious competitions, including the Bisley match in England. He was stationed in London during a period of time, met a dancer who in turn introduced her to an actress who sort of encouraged him to leave his army career behind and become an actor. And so that's what he did in 1928. He, um, went on to um, struggle for a number of years. His first appearance on film was as an uncredited extra in a 1929 movie called Piccadilly, and then continued to do some unproductive extra work, which never actually made it on the screen, um, and then signed with a talent agent. His first actual on-screen work was because of his marksmanship, which was kind of interesting. And then he... While he was working on on that film, The Informer, he was asked to test for a production being shot nearby, and he made a favorable impression and got cast in the movie The Flying Scotsman in 1929, which was Mm -hmm. his, like, uh, was the film that allowed him to get a six-month contract with the film company, so he was in a few more shows. He didn't really have much confidence in his acting 
um, skills and thought he just got his film roles because he looked good, which, so he didn't have any confidence in his acting roles, but he must have had a lot of confidence in his looks. So <laughs> he so he he sort of stepped away from film for a while to do some stage work in order to to work on his his craft which I guess we should give him some credit for that for doing the work. Yeah. It's also like nice to hear about someone kind of struggling cuz I yeah. feel like so many of the stars that we read about it's just like immediate success. They were discovered like walking down Fifth Avenue and then they instantly were stars. Yeah. He did get approached by the vice president of MGM at the time who who offered him a 9-month contract. And so he left the United Kingdom in 1930. He was just a stock player with very small roles for the next couple of years, Over it, during which time he got married and had a couple of kids, um, but never really got anything more than minor roles for MGM, which he was signed for. And then when MGM didn't fit, renew his contract, he went back to the United States, or excuse me, back to the United Kingdom to try and, you know, find some work there. He did um, a, a, a little bit of acting, and didn't really didn't really break through, and the economy was in such a way that he was able to go back to California and found a little flat in on Sunset Boulevard. So like I don't I don't know how bad off he actually was if he actually got a um, an apartment on Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. And so, but he was having trouble finding acting work, I guess, and and ended up taking a lot of. Um, just like regular jobs, he worked for a bookie, and then he was offered the job as the assistant manager of a Shell gas station, and he happened to be driving back from the interview with Shell, and, you know, swung past Paramount, and Paramount, like, he happened to run into a casting director who was looking for a British actor to, like, fill in at the last minute, and so, so this casting director offered him a two-week contract that was, like, way more money than this assistant job at, or or the assistant manager job at the Shell station, and so he took it. And basically the rest is history. He went on to (laughs) appear as the leading man in movies from 1937 until 1944. Um, He actually, so I mentioned that his marksmanship and his shooting experience played a role in his um, acting. So he got that that first on-screen role um, shooting, and then, like, literally shooting. And then he was injured on the set of the movie Hotel Imperia, um, almost, like, fatally injured. He was part of a cavalry scene. Because he had actually had that experience, he insisted on doing that scene himself. And he fell off the horse very dramatically, and badly damaged his hand and got a concussion, and that was sort of... (laughs) It was also not the last time he was injured on on set, but he went on in the 1930s um, to appear in a lot of movies like um, Beaugest and um, with with Robert Preston and Gary Cooper, and then Everything Happens at Night with Sonia Honey, who's an ice skater. Um, Continued to just appear in romantic comedies and dramas as sort of the leading man... And then, as World War II unfolded, he appeared in more action films. And then, 1945, he appeared in the movie The Lost Weekend, for which he won um, not only the Academy Award, but just, like, a slew of, 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 of awards, which surprised the studio. Like, no one thought he was going to win these awards. And <laughs> <laughs> he, he, And after that, he just continued to act. 
and stayed con on contract with Paramount until the early 1950s, after which he concentrated on directing, mostly on television, and, and also appeared on television as well, and then ultimately um, got lung cancer and died at the age of 79 in California in 1986, and his body was cremated, cremated and the ashes were scattered into the Pacific Ocean. Hmm. He's a total jerk in this movie, but not so yeah, much in real is. life. <laughs> I, I, I felt like, my, my one of my thoughts was just like, how could you ever marry this person? Yeah. Just like, he didn't even have to say anything, and you could just tell he was a jerk. Yeah, like by the expression on his face. So yeah. he's you could just obviously tell. a good actor. <laughs> yeah. Totally. I believe you bioed a princess. Would you tell us about Philadelphia's own princess? Yes. I, Philadelphia royalty and actual royalty. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice when that so, works out. <laughs> Grace Patricia Kelly was born on November 12, 1929 at Hanneman University Hospital in Philadelphia, to a uh, wealthy and connected family. Mm -hmm. Her father was Irish-American John B. Kelly Sr., and he had won three Olympic gold medals for sculling and owned um, a big brickwork contracting company that was like oh. working all along the East Coast. Um, he was also a politician, a registered Democrat. He was nominated to be mayor of Philadelphia in the 1935 election, but lost by the closest margin in Philly's history. Oh. And in later years, he served on the Fairmount Park Commission. During World War II, he was appointed by President Roosevelt as National Director of Physical Fitness. Sure. And <laughs> she We need one of those. I know, I was like, what What do you, I mean, is he, like, putting the troops through their, like, paces? I don't know. <laughs> but um, she had two uncles who were involved in the industry. Her uncle, Walter, was a vaudeville star who also did some work for MGM and Paramount Pictures. And then her uncle, George, was a Pulitzer Prize winning dramatist, screenwriter, and director. Yeah. So she, she definitely had connections. connections. And then her mother, Margaret Catherine Major, had taught physical education at the University of Pennsylvania and was the first woman to coach women's athletics at Penn. And Grace Kelly also had three siblings. I think she was the second youngest, um, and the whole family was Catholic. Sure. And so I went to a big exhibition about Grace Kelly's life. Yes. Like, some years ago at the James Michener Museum mm -hmm. in Bucks County. Mm -hmm. And they went a lot into her, like, family background. And her father was apparently, like, a total jerk. Yes. <laughs> and he, he was, like, one of those fathers who mostly just cared about athletic prowess. And, like, it kind of makes sense, you know, Olympic gold medalist. And, like, his wife is, like, this... Um, you know, the first, like, woman's coach at an Ivy League right. institution, yeah. et cetera. Um, and he was, like, particularly hard on Grace Kelly and always said she would never amount to anything, even though Turned she, out. even when, yeah, when she was successful, he still looked down on her. So anyway, yeah. that was it, like, there was some family drama there. Of all his children, he, he, the only one he didn't think would ever succeed in life was Grace, which, like, yes, clearly... <laughs> He thought going into acting for a woman was, like, next door to being a prostitute, so he did not want her to be an actress. Great. Um, 
but she knew from the time she was little that she wanted to pursue acting and she started in 1950 when she was 20 and began appearing in um, New York stage productions and then also live drama productions on TV. Oh. And she had her breakthrough role in October 1953 when she was in John Ford's Mogambo mm-hmm. um, with Clark Gable and Ava Gardner. Oh. And she won a Golden Globe and Academy Award nomination for that. Oh. And then she had a leading role in The Country Girl in 1954, right. which she was starring in with Bing Crosby. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was sort of like against type that she was playing an unglamorous role and... She won an Academy Award for Best Actress for that. And then soon after that, she starred in High Noon and High Society. Mm-hmm. And then uh, she's really famous for being a, like, quote-unquote Hitchcock blonde. So she was in three Hitchcock movies, Dialogue for Murder, Rear Window, and To Catch a Thief. Um, and, the, and the whole, like, stereotype is it's supposed to be this cool, sophisticated woman who you could, like, never really get close to but was super perfect. And I think that's still what a lot of people think of her, yeah. even though that was just the roles. Right. Um, so she retired from acting at age 26 to marry Prince Rainier III and became the Princess of Monaco. Um, so basically she only acted from age 20 to 26, and she's still, like, one of the biggest icons in like American celebrity history. <laughs> yeah. It, which <laughs> it's amazing. Yes. Uh and she had three kids, Caroline, Albert, and Stephanie, and she kept dual citizenship, so she stayed close with the United States. Uh, she died tragically at the Monaco Hospital on September 14, 1982, after a car accident. The autopsy showed that she had a brain hemorrhage while she was driving yeah. and that's why the car crashed and then after the crash she had a second hemorrhage yeah. so that was caused by she, the crash right yes mm-hmm. and then she died at age 52 yeah she was so young i know it's another one of those perfect famous celebrity people dying before their time yeah totally Very sad so, have you seen a lot of movies with her in them? No, I think I've just seen... I've seen High Noon. I have not seen Rear Window. I think... Yeah, I think I've basically only seen her in the Hitchcock yeah. movies. Oh, High Noon is so good. And actually, we should add High Noon to our list. But it's a Western. It, But it has Gary Cooper in it. And it has Grace Kelly in it. Okay. And there is... so it. <laughs> well, I just... It doesn't have John Wayne in it, I don't think. Okay. All right. And we have It has Quakers in it. And it's another Quaker. Oh. <laughs> it's a Quaker Western. Is it another Quaker? Yes. All right. If it's a Quaker Western, then it's I'll a Quaker in. Western. Um, um, all right. We should put that on our list. Yes. So this was your first time seeing Dial M for Murder, correct? Yes. Yes, it was. So what did you think? The tension was, I was so stressed out watching this movie. Like <laughs> the whole time. Like I have a note that said, when the the murder is in progress and, you know, and they're at the stag night and, you know, and Tony is supposed to be calling to, you know, to, you know, to start the whole murder in motion to like, you know, he's supposed to call his house. The friend is behind the, or the hired killer is behind the curtains and his wife is supposed to come out and answer the phone. And at some point we realize that someone's clock isn't right. 
And like my note is, geez Louise, not quite all the details are right, and it's super stressful, even though obviously I don't want Margot to die. (laughs) (laughs) It is really stressful. It's so stressful. Also, she's. Mar- I'm, I was watching this movie mostly alone, and Margot at the beginning of the movie says, "I don't like thrillers when I'm alone." And I was like, "Margot, same. <laughs> Me too." <laughs> so you're like, "We're having a moment, Margot." Yeah, we're having a moment. So like, it reminded me in a lot of ways of Gaslight, which we also could put on our list. Uh, like it was Gaslight dialed up seven or eight notches and like twisted seven or eight like, notches tighter. I was really stressed out by this, this movie. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because none of the characters are super likable in this movie, so mm-hmm. you don't really know who are you rooting for. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I watched this movie this time with my brother, who really likes Hitchcock and also is, like, a horror movie fan and stuff, and he was, like, 100% rooting for the husband, <laughs> to get the murder, like, to, for the murder to be successful. Oh, my God. Like, what? He he found all the tension hilarious. And <laughs> I was, like, you know, like, I was, like, I have pacing the room. Like, <laughs> I know. It's, <laughs> like, I have to, yeah, clutch something. Yeah, and I think that is, it, it was an interesting theme to explore. Mm-hmm. Like, there's this... Like, if you're into mysteries and, like, noir and stuff like that, there's always this idea of the perfect murder. Mm -hmm. But there's really no way that you can control every variable when you're dealing with human beings. Yeah. So, like, it was cool to see how he planned out the whole murder, like, and all the tiny details. I I liked, I thought it was kind of innovative that they showed it from his perspective Mm -hmm. so you knew what was coming. Yeah, or you knew Um, it was supposed to be coming. Yeah, exactly. But it like there's you just can't you can't pull it off. Like there's no way that nothing's going to go wrong. It's like in a heist movie when like they need to take the elevator to escape and then like it stops at a floor and someone else gets on or like right. something like that. Yeah. Right. You know, because you see his planning ahead of time and the way that he thinks it's supposed to go as he's sort of setting it up to the guy that he hires to um that he blackmails basically into killing his wife. You know, it, you, he sets it up in such a way that then I was, then I afterwards thought, I don't know who to trust in this movie. I don't know what is actually the case. So, you know, literally for the first, like, 15 minutes that the chief inspector was on, on screen, I was like, is he, is he actually a police officer or was he hired by Tony to be, to play <laughs> the part of a police officer after uh, Margot had been convicted and he comes back you know, and is clearly trying to exonerate Margot. That I realized, oh, he he obviously is is not hired. But you know, it really made me question everything that um, Hitchcock was presenting us with, which was sort of terrifying and also thrilling in a positive way. Yeah, it you did kind of wonder the whole time, like who is who are the good guys, who are the bad guys? Yeah, I mean, because Margot, I mean. She definitely did not deserve to be murdered or whatever, but she was having an affair. Yeah. And, like, seemed pretty, um, okay. Like, just no moral ambivalence about it. Totally. Like, totally cool with it. Um, really, I thought, like, a lot of what I was paying attention to in this movie was, like, basically that this was a 
very high class of mm-hmm. people and they yeah. did things in a different way. Like it, it almost felt like the great Gatsby where it's like, yeah. there's this whole way that we behave at this level of society and like we can do whatever as long as nobody makes a fuss. Right. And we take also take care of our own and like, like she just blatantly had the guy she was having an affair with like right there and was like still making out with him and then they were like, oh, let's all just hang out. Yeah. Like, what? What? Yeah. What? Yeah. What is this? What are the rules of this? <laughs> this society. This high society. And they were so rich, too. That was the other thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess it was mostly her money. Yeah. Because they were joking about how they wanted him to get a real job after being a tennis star yeah. and oh stuff. God. But Yeah. The- yeah, but... <laughs> The horrible life of a former uh, tennis pro has to has to actually go and get an actual job. Not to bring up a Woody Allen movie, but, <laughs> but did you see the movie West or not um, Match Point? No, so it was like a departure from typical Woody Allen movies. But it's ba- like it, in some ways it it's almost like uh, there's it has a lot of similar themes. It's like a former tennis pro and he's like trying to get away with a murder and he's like married to a really uh, rich woman. Uh-huh. And it's the same kind of tension of like, will this person get away with it or not? And it it was the same thing that he was a former tennis star and he wanted to have access to his wife's money. It's to- That's totally a reference to this movie, right? Must yeah, be. it has to be like 100%. Yeah. So I only just thought of that now. But, um, <laughs> Not that I'm going to recommend anyone go watch a Woody Allen movie. But. No, but <laughs> but just for the record, we're not going to watch it, but we know that it exists. <laughs> we know that it exists and that there are still references to this movie circulating in pop culture. That's right. It's very important. So the guy that Tony hires to do the murder, did you not think he was like a complete idiot where he just like goes to this guy's house the guy's, like, wiping down everything he touches. Yeah. And he's just like, I guess I'll just stay here and hear what he's got to say. Yeah. This guy's telling me about his problems with his wife. There's no way this isn't gonna turn out terribly. <laughs> yeah. Like, not knowing what was gonna happen, I was sort of like, oh, is this, like, code? This, like, selling the car thing? Is that, like, code for murder for hire? Like, are they already on the same page? Or So I was a little bit surprised when... You know, he had to sort of spell it out to him of, you know, I've brought you here so I can blackmail you into killing my wife. It was like, that part I thought was crazy. Like, listen, dude, if you have the energy to, like, stalk some other guy and, like, find the perfect person to, like, murder someone and follow them for months to the point that you know all the petty crimes they've been committing, you also could just get a job. Right. Just, like, like get... Put that energy yeah. into... Get, like, any job. Because that's, like, a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah, he's... Well, at some point I wrote in my in my notes, Tony is a monster in capital letters, and I stand by that. He is. He's a monster. He's a monster. Um, I was very impressed with his mind, though, that, like, I was like, all right, he's just a super meticulous dude, and he's planned out this whole murder and spent all this time doing it, and, like, this is how he is. But then when something goes wrong... He also thinks well on his feet mm-hmm. and, like, spins the whole thing. Is like, all right, well, I'll make it look like she's a murderer and I'll just, like, come up with this whole plan on the spot right. to get her executed. And it worked. I, I, 
I cannot imagine being able to think that well on the spot like that. Yeah. Although I guess if you're already, like, if you've already spent so many hours and days and weeks and months plotting one murder, sort of shifting a little bit to think, having already, like, stalked a guy, that's just the way (laughs) that your mind works, I guess. It's like Sudoku, like, you're keeping your mind limber by planning murders, and then (laughs) when another one comes up... Crossword puzzles, Sudoku, and murder. (laughs) Did you think it was kind of hilarious that they went to that stag party? Did you pay attention to the dialogue at all? The stag party? Not really. I I mean, I was mostly, like, fixated on the, like, why why does he have to call his boss at 11 o'clock at night? Who believes that as something that you would have to do? If I had to call my boss at 11 o'clock at night, it would be an emergency of, like, epic proportions. And no one thought anything of that or, like, questioned him or he probably even asked the other, like, people about it after the murder happened. Yeah. Would they, actually, this is a plot hole, wouldn't they have called his boss and been like, hey, can you, like, what did he talk to you about? But I guess, like, to, like, prove his alibi. Yeah. But he doesn't even have a boss, does he? No, because he's selling sports equipment, right? Oh, I thought that was a fake job. Well, I don't know. His real job was I have... doing the murders. Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's actually true in this movie. <laughs> what is truth, Hillary? Who can say? <laughs> I don't know. By day, selling sports equipment. By night, planning murders. <laughs> I don't know. Oh my god, that, like, what if, what if he doesn't actually have a job at all, period, and he's, his wife thinks that he has a job and that he has, like, reports to file, and really he's just making all that shit up, and oh, I didn't even, like, That's what I thought was the case. I, I didn't even really consider have a job. that possibility. And oh then God. every day he's just going to plan the murder. <laughs> that's what that's what he's doing. He's a monster. He is a monster. And he's so like cool and aloof that even when he gets caught in the end, he just like makes himself a drink and is like, Well, you got me. Yeah. And like who else wants a drink? I guess you don't you can't have a drink, Chief Inspector, because you're still working. Because <laughs> you have an actual job? Because somebody around here has got to work. Um, let's talk about somebody who's not a monster and maybe just lame. What did you think about, um, Halliday, the crime writer? Well, my only real thought about him was maybe more him in relationship to Tony. And it was like, if you're going to have a romantic rival to someone who's involved with your spouse, and then you want to murder your spouse, it's probably better that your romantic rival is not a crime writer who spends a lot of time thinking about murders and, like, figuring out who did crimes. Because he actually was, like, you know, involved in the discovery. At the end. Like, at the last minute, he was like, oh, I'm gonna put put to use my my crime writing skills by trying to, like, launch a last-ditch effort to, like, save Margot's life instead of before the trial when he could, like... (sighs) Maybe he he just needed a lot of time, like Tony did. He's like every day. I instead of going to work, I just think about it. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Except thinking about that could count as work for him because it could be like you know part of the writing process. That's true. I thought it was interesting. I always am curious about when there's sort of like 
you know, British people in a movie, and then there's, like, an American character. Mm -hmm. He was just so well cast to be, like, the American who you would have an affair with. (laughs) You know what I mean? Right. Like, I think at some point, people kept asking him, oh, is this your first time in London? As if they, like, could not believe that he had ever left the United States before. (laughs) It's like, Um, you're so American. He reminded me, like... Do of the character in the third man, the main character, oh, yeah. who was also an American oh, yeah. crime writer. Yeah, but the, he was like a little bit darker and more disillusioned. That this guy still seemed pretty like privileged and right. Is he? You know, is he as? Do we know? Is he a successful crime writer? Like, is he on the New York Times, you know, bestsellers list? And he doesn't also doesn't have to work for a living. He's just well. In my holiday fan fiction, he was number two. <laughs> I mean, I kind of assumed that he was successful. Yeah, true. Because otherwise, why would Hitchcock Blonde be with him? It's true. Okay. Your logic holds water. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm a a little punchy today. (laughs) You know, we have to balance out the the utter terror of the idea of your spouse planning your murder. So honestly, I thought that Halliday was maybe a little bit dense because he's like inventing, basically, at the end of it, he's basically inventing the truth of what actually happened. Which is, you know, he's trying to get, he's trying trying to exonerate Margot for murder by, insi- like, making up this idea that Tony framed her, or, like, plotted her murder. Mm-hmm. And he's sort of like, oh, but, you know, it, he, it didn't actually succeed, so, like, we'll convince the courts that this happened, and so then you'll only go to jail for a couple of years. And Tony's like, wait, 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 I'm not going to jail for a couple of years. And, you know, I'm listening to Halliday say this, I'm like... Are you are you an idiot? Do you like why are you telling him this whole thing that like I guess maybe to you seems like outlandish, but like is the actual truth? Do you not understand that this man doesn't actually love his wife? Like you can get that. Yeah, I mean he was a little bit dense and like sort of in that like brash American way of you know thinking you have things figured out, but not being super thorough. Yeah. Right. Or like thinking about what the actual consequences are. Um, but I guess he actually did care about Margot because he was the only one trying to save her in the end. Well, the chief inspector was trying to save her. The chief inspector was like, well, this doesn't check out. Well, I mean, but that was his job. This oh, true. He was the only yeah. person who had like yeah. an actual affection for her. <laughs> yeah. And cared that she was going to be killed. That's true. Yeah. What did you think about the chief inspector? Uh, he was the only character that I found likable. Yeah. Once I convinced myself that he was not actually like hired by Tony, I was like, oh, oh, you're the hero. You're going to figure this out. Like, basically, he was combing um, his mustache, and I was like, okay, you're a good guy. <laughs> the last scene is him fixing his mustache. Mm-hmm. Did you notice mm-hmm. that? Which yes. I kind of loved. But he did look like if you were going to hire someone to be, like, a fake inspector, you yes. would hire him. Because he, he very much played to type. Yeah. Complete with the, like, gray pinstripe suit. Yeah. I liked his whole manner. Yes. Like, the way he approached like solving the case yeah so i was glad he was in the movie because otherwise it's kind of it would have just been like a lot of anxiety but like he provided some sense of like stability and yeah um hope yeah well and i appreciated that he was he was he sort of he bent the rule the rule of law a little bit in order to like make a like, in order to actually solve the case. So he, like, broke into the guy's apartment and, like, <laughs> switched the coats so that he could have the actual key. 
Well, and then that like heartbreaking moment when I forget what the line was, but you know, Margot, you know, was basically, you know, she she gets let out of jail at the eleventh hour because of the chief inspector wanting to come have her come in and basically test her and and her husband. And I think it was about the key, right? That like, you know, she was basically like, "How did you know? How did you know that you know that that I wasn't going to have the right key?" Or I forget what it was, but you know, he he's like, "I just I I knew that you know you you were framed." And it, and like her, you know, Grace Kelly's response to that is just heart wrenching, because she like is starting to realize that her husband actually is, has framed her for this. Like, she's, like, starting to internalize it. That was horrible. I felt like I wish she was on screen more Uh in this movie. Yeah, I don't think this movie passes the Bechdel test. (laughs) There's there's only one woman in it. Yeah, there's five men and one woman. (laughs) Oh, beautiful girl. What a gorgeous creature. Beautiful girl. Let me call a preacher. What can I do? But give my heart to you. Before we talk about that, do you want to talk costumes? Yes. Yes, I do want to talk about costumes. I have a lot of notes about them because, of course, Grace Kelly looks amazing and everything. Yes. Uh, I really liked her red dress in the beginning, mm-hmm. although it was, like, very sexy. Yes. Yeah. The red... Well, she wears two different red dresses in the beginning, right? Is that Right. I don't know if they're both supposed to be red, but e- either way, they were both stunning. Like, yeah, she looked, and I was like, "You're just lounging around, and like yeah. this is just what you wear on like a random afternoon." Yeah, I guess that's what you do when you're Grace Kelly. You just lounge in beautiful dresses. Uh, she also l- later in the movie had a fabulous gray suit. Yes. Oh my god. I I literally I'm, stopped the movie and went and got Jen and was like, "You have to look at this this wool suit that she is wearing. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen on a person." Did Jen like it? She did. She may have just been humoring me, but she did. <laughs> <laughs> but the like side buttons and the pleats. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it was fabulous. Um, what did you think of the? Um, nightgown she wore in the murder scene um it was the most splendid nightgown i have ever worn in or i have ever seen sorry i have not worn worn (laughs) it it's like you nope you have chris kelly's nightgown. no 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 i let me tell you i would not ever be able to pull that off um it was the most beautiful nightgown i have ever seen it was and that was just her everyday nightgown yeah i don't know what her fancy nightgown would look like that nightgown was a moment where I wanted to know a little bit more, or I wish that I knew more about, like, you know, the materials and, and how it was made, because it seemed, like, impossibly gossamer. And, yeah, like, how, you know, what that is she is wearing true. underneath it that she can possibly be wearing this on screen? I don't know. It was very, like, gauzy. I thought yeah. it was, I was surprised that, like, it kind of got past the mm-hmm. censors. Although I don't know how bad they would have been at this point, but um, yeah, it it was like fairly revealing, yeah. and really like her clothes in general were cut very much so that you could like admire her figure and stuff. But I'm sure that was all Hitchcock, yeah, I'm sure, <laughs> and his I'm male sure. gaze. That's right. 
God bless his male gaze. I don't know. I did like the gray um, pinside stripe suit, as I mentioned, of the um, chief inspector. Oh, yeah. He looked good. And he was, like, nice and tall. And, I mean, Mm -hmm. he he, uh, could wear a suit. Yeah. Well, and nothing beats, you know, shots of, you know, seven or eight men in tuxes sitting around a table having drinks. I mean, that just looks like luxury right there. That just looks classy. I don't care if one of them is a monster. (laughs) We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. This leads me into social justice, because what did you think of this? Because I have, like, a hard time finding anything much social justice-y. It was just, like, rich people problems. Well, so it reminded me a, a little bit of our conversation that we had when we were talking about the movie His Girl Friday, where, you know, that dealt with the court system and um, someone who is sentenced to death for, you know, in this case, it's a, she, you know, she committed the crime. She did actually kill this guy, but it was entirely out of self-defense and was defending herself from an, a, basically an abusive husband, you know, who like sort of manipulates her psychologically rather than physically abusing her. You know, so while it doesn't, I think, uh, like specifically address like, oh, how does, how does society like treat or deal with like this kind of thing? It made me think about, you know, all of the people who are wrongfully convicted and end up on death row totally unjustly. And, you know, especially the women who are actually victims themselves who end up, you know, having to pay the price for being the victims. And, like, there's so much victim blaming, um, which is so um, timely at at the moment that we are recording this, right after the Kavanaugh hearings. And, um, well, while I don't think it directly addresses anything related to social justice, it certainly, like, indirectly addresses you know, some of the themes that we've already discussed and and then some timely, other timely themes. Yeah, I mean, I did think that it was social justice that the inspector continued to pursue the case Mm -hmm. to try to ensure that they actually had the right person because too often it's more important that the case is closed and that someone uh, is convicted than it is that they get the right person. (laughs) Right, they don't often care or they don't always care. I've been living my own life, making my own decisions for a long while now. It's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again. So, I mean, we know that this doesn't pass the Bechtel test, but I have to say that really the only reason that Tony was able to pull off this whole thing, like getting her jailed and everything, was because she was so infantilized that, like, when... So she commits... You know, she kills this guy in self-defense, immediately calls her husband, and he, he says, like, just go back, go wait in the bedroom until I get there, don't touch anything. Right. And then when he gets there, he's like, just go back to sleep and I'll deal with the police. Right. Well, and even, so, be- like, even before that, though, you know, they're going off to this party, and she's like, well, you know, okay, well, you're going to go out to this party, and I'm going to go see a movie. And he, you know, totally manipulates her into staying at home, and is like... Well, if you're going out to a movie, then we're going to, like, stay here and, you know, because I don't want you to go out at all. And so then she's like, no, you, ha- you like, I want, I don't want to ruin your night. You know, I'll stay here and do your press clippings from your tennis profession. Oh, yeah. I wrote that down. I thought that was the most depressing 
evening I could imagine, like yeah. doing press clippings for my spouse who is like going out with friends yeah. and I have to stay home and like go through old newspaper clippings that are just like stoking his ego and like paste them into a book. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So not a great portrayal of women. No. I mean, I think we all know that Hitchcock had some issues with women too. So. Just a few. Are we ready to rate it? I think so. What would you give it? Not a great portrayal of women. Really stressful to watch. But, on the other hand, fairly artfully done. And I appreciated, we didn't, you know, we didn't really talk about, like, the cinematography and some of the shots that were kind of interesting. Given those things, I might give it uh, three and a half or a four. I might give it a four. Oh, wow. Maybe. That's high. Three and a half. I feel like I'm overly forgiving. Three and a half? Let's say three and a half. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, I, I don't know. I struggle with what to rate it because it's definitely a well-done movie. It's well-acted. But I agree with you. It's so stressful that it's, like, not a lot of, at least for me, it was not a lot of fun to watch. And that, like, that was, like, re-watching it. I don't know. I, I would maybe do a three, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a fine movie. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, like, charade, I thought... That was also like noirish, mm-hmm. and uh, but that was more almost like a caper movie in yeah. some ways. Like they're running all around the city, mm-hmm. and it's sort of glamorous, and there's humor in it. And this was there was very little humor, or, or, and you were just stuck in one place the whole time. Right. So yeah, it wasn't as fun to watch. Right. So what's our next movie, Hill? Um, we are wrapping up season two with White Christmas. From like Oklahoma to like Hitchcock and then we're going to back so we we're are giving you some variety here. Yeah, we are large, we contain multitudes, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> May it please the court, I submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex. Follow the Screen Sirens on Twitter at the Screen Sirens. And leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help other people find us. Thanks for listening. After all, tomorrow is another day.